It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. To a lot of people on Earth today, it probably doesn't feel like we're living in soulful times. Simply finding peace and quiet is often a challenge, and spirituality can carry baggage. We're traumatized by religion in the Western world, and uh, there is such a, a reaction either toward it or against it that it feels like this big trauma. The actor Rain Wilson is well acquainted with spiritual struggle and trauma. Anxiety, depression, and other mental health challenges led him to a multi-year exploration of the soul. He was eventually reunited with the Baha'i faith he was raised in, and he compiled his learnings in his latest book, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. TV host Jenna Bush Hager talks to Wilson, best known for playing Dwight Schrute on the TV show The Office, about the journey of writing his book and finding his way in the world. Here's Hager. So Rain starts his book by writing this. Let me be blunt with you, dear reader. I know what you might be asking right now. Why the hell is the actor who played Dwight on The Office writing a book about spirituality? Okay, why? <laughs> <laughs> we'll jump right in. Um, the kind of the most important question of the many questions, the book talks about death and God and the meaning of life, but this is probably the most important question. Why is Dwight writing a book on spirituality? And um, there's a number of different reasons. Uh, I will break it down into three reasons. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to kind of do bullet point versions of those three reasons. One is... I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith, and for those who don't know, the Baha'i faith is very inclusive and universalist of all spiritual beliefs. So I grew up in a family that read the Buddha at the dinner table. And when born-again Christians would knock on the door on Sunday, we'd invite them in and cook them pancakes (laughs) and talk about the book of Revelation with them. And we had books on our shelf of you know, Sikh authors and Sufi authors and the Bhagavad Gita. And so I grew up in this milieu of uh, singing spiritual songs and gathering with diverse communities and uh, being open to all of these different kinds of spiritual ideas. Mm -hmm. So this is just part of my DNA. (laughs) And I've always had a kind of nascent spiritual curiosity. I think from that background, I tell people that People don't know this, but I kind of have, I have a secret inner Oprah. Um, <laughs> so do I. And as do you. Yes, I as do. As do you. And uh, that's, so that's part one. Part two is I left my faith, like many of folks yeah. do in my 20s, uh, in, a, in, a, in a big way, in a hard way, when I moved to New York City to study acting and, and to be an actor. And uh, basically, I didn't want anything to do with religion with spirituality, with morality, with God, with you know higher concepts. I just wanted to live in New York, go to acting school, party, have a great time, learn how to act, you know, and experience being kind of a bohemian in the big city at age 20. I moved there in the late 80s at age 20. And, um, and, and that was great, and that worked out well. And then I went through, kind of in my mid-20s, 
what I realize now, because we have the vocabulary for yeah. it, was a kind of a, a, a mental health crisis. We, in the 90s, some of, us, some of us can remember the 90s. In the 90s, we didn't really have words for mental health crises, <laughs> right? So I would have these crippling anxiety attacks, and I went into the, the school doctor, and I thought I was having a heart attack, and, and, and I would... You know, I would fall on the floor, like shaking and sweating and hyperventilating and uh, severe bouts of depression. I dealt with addiction issues all throughout my 20s and, you know, loneliness and um, alienation and just kind of a, uh, a really uh, kind of inner discontent mm-hmm. uh, where, and, and, and it was very perturbing to me because at the same time I was I was a professional actor yeah. I wasn't getting paid anything and I and I you know I, but I was doing theater in New York working with some great directors like I had an, an agent this was beyond my wildest dreams for a suburban Seattle boy whose dad was a sewer man to be living in Brooklyn and being an actor and like getting a paycheck and like and I thought, well, I'm supposed to be happy yeah. because I'm living my dream. Why am I so unhappy? Why do I wake up every 3 a.m. kind of like wondering about the meaning of life and, and twisting my hair out? And so I, I didn't have money to go to therapy, so I went the only direction that I uh, thought possible uh, to heal this, which was to explore spiritual ideas because I thought well maybe by jettisoning everything and anything to do with religion maybe I have discarded tools that might be helpful for me in my own kind of mental health well-being and happiness journey and so I basically spent many years reading all the major holy books of the world's religions and I did a deep dive I did a deep study in to trying to figure out like, what is the truth? You know, is there a God? Do we have free will? What is love? What, you know, what, do we have a soul? What happens after we die? These things became very palpable and immediate for me because I was suffering so much. And I, I quote in the book, Julia Cameron, who wrote mm-hmm. The Great Artist's Way, mm-hmm. who said, I came to spirituality out of necessity, not out of virtue. Wow. And I think that very much applies to me. Yeah. So t- talk to us about how, as you studied God and all of these things, you found yourself healing. Or did, did you find that God and a connection to God healed? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a complicated question. I really cannot say that For you. As, as I read the Bhagavad Gita and the Dhammapadas of the Buddha <laughs> and the Quran, that all of a sudden I was like happier and like had everything figured out. But I felt like I was on a path. And I felt like I was onto something because I really thought if I can hitch my soul and my will, my volition to a deeper sense of meaning, purpose, and clarity, that then things will calm down in my very confused, (laughs) anxious, and muddled head. And in a lot of ways, that was true. So as I went on this journey, I went back to the books of the Baha'i faith and got to read them with clear eyes, not through my parents' vision, but to have my own personal experience of the actual holy writings of the founder, Baha'u'llah. And so I eventually came back to the faith of my childhood and and that brought me a a lot of meaning and a lot of solace. 
you know, were my problems instantly solved? No, not, not even close. Yeah. Um, but it's been a, a, an incredibly rewarding journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to Kelly Corrigan this morning on our podcast, yeah. and she, we were talking about suffering, and suffering is one of the things I talk about in the book because I feel like contemporary American society doesn't know how to discuss suffering and the purpose of suffering. Why is there suffering? People are like, why am I suffering? I shouldn't be suffering. Why is there suffering? This is unfair. Why, why is something going not in the way that I want it to go? How can there be a God if there is mm-hmm. cancer in babies? Mm-hmm. This doesn't make any sense. So uh, a kind of a deeper understanding and uh, discussion of the nature of suffering, the purpose of suffering, which the Buddha is very good at, <laughs> great place to start, uh, it can be incredibly helpful. So that kind of deeper understanding of the yeah. purpose and nature of suffering also helped me in my own suffering. I want to go back to your childhood. Sitting around your table, you've, I've done some research on you. Uh-oh. I know that <laughs> you said it was tough and mm-hmm. there were times you felt alone, but it was sort of the foundation, the bedrock of what would come later. So talk about your childhood and, and what it was like. Well, um, yeah, so I think maybe everyone can relate to this. Like, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. (laughs) uh, Being part of the Baha'i community in the 70s, where we had wonderful, long-haired, crazy people talking about peace and love, and we talked about... This was the 70s. You won't remember this, but in the 70s... I wasn't alive. No. Not to age you, but no. We talked about world peace. What? Yes. Was it possible? It was possible in the (laughs) 70s. By the late 90s, everyone was like, forget it. So, uh, but we would have, we would sing about it and pray about it and love about it and read about it. And Carl Sagan was talking about it. And, you know, and politicians and beauty contestants were talking about it ad infinitum. So... There were some really uh, beautiful aspects to that. Um, and my dad had, my dad, God rest his soul, he passed away about three years ago. He had uh, such an interesting life because he was a sewer man. He worked in sewer repair, Jim Dandy Sewer Repair <laughs> Service of Seattle, Washington. It's still there. Give them a call. <laughs> Who took over? You didn't take it over? My uncle did, but then he sold it about 15 years ago, okay. so I don't know who has okay. it now, so probably some hedge fund. <laughs> hey, not the right place owned, for owned the that guy. Ideas Fest. Yeah. Not the right place. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> some capitalist swine is profiting on the backs of the laborers. But, uh... Anyway. Uh, but at the same time, my family was incredibly dysfunctional, mm-hmm. and you know, my mom took off when I was about a year and a half old. I didn't see her again until I was about 15. My dad, I, I went and stayed with my dad. He remarried. Uh, we immediately uh, moved to the Mosquito Coast, to the jungly coasts of Nicaragua wow. uh, as a child. So that was weird to be <laughs> kind of motherless in a jungle. Uh, <laughs> It sounds like a television show, <laughs> and uh, and there were there was a there was a lot of dysfunction, yeah. and it was a family that didn't know how to love or how to hug or how to 
um, talk about emotions, and yet here we were part of a faith community that was all about love and unity and bringing people together and building grassroots peace movements, and our family yeah. uh, uh, were not in love. So that caused in me a, a, a peculiar kind of uh, alienation that's I've been working on for about 20 years in therapy. Mm -hmm. So Well, I'm glad we could do it in front yeah. of all these strangers. <laughs> Sometimes Which I is interesting because people, as I've been on this book tour, people are like, wow, you're just so open talking about your dysfunction and everything. I can't believe how honest you are. And it's like, well, yeah, duh. Isn't that what we should do? Yes. Isn't that what we can yes. do as human beings? Yes. Like, can we just talk about our vulnerabilities yeah. and our struggle yeah. and uh, stop pretending so much? Yes. How are we gonna learn and heal? How is the younger generation gonna learn and heal if they don't see you know, a kind of a, a raw honesty from, from the older generation? Yeah, or if they think that everything on Instagram is real and that yeah. perfection is what we all strive for. Um, okay, let's talk about the intersection of humor and grace. I wonder how old you were when you, because you've made me laugh about 12 times and we've been sitting here for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, how old you were when you first made somebody really laugh and how that felt to you? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, it's funny, I just had a memory spring up. Like literally, this was so not planned. I've never told this story before. Tell it. But, <laughs> First of all, I grew up watching television sitcoms. And to me, they were my life. There was the, the, the sun and the moon was, was watching Barney Miller and MASH and Taxi and the Bob Newhart show and Mary Tyler Moore. And these shows raised me just as much as my parents did. And I always loved those comedic side characters. And I, I, I really, in my heart, I longed to like, I want to be one of those clowns. <laughs> and, you know. Look what happened. Look what happened. Yo, he made it. So, I'll stop. <laughs> but it's funny that you mentioned that about humor because I remember I being very young. Maybe I was like seven or eight. And the movie Brigadoon was on. And it was something, and I, I don't even remember if this is the plot, but I remember my dad saying, yeah, it's about like this city and it and it comes up from maybe it was a science fiction thing i'm forgetting he was telling some story about a city that arose out of the ocean every 200 years to kind of join the world and then went away again and then i th i was very young and i was like so every 200 years the city emerges and everyone in the city goes <gasps> and then it goes and disappears again <sighs> And, my, and they just were laughing and laughing. And I was like, oh, the power of comedy. <laughs> and, and I did realize when I took my first acting class, and I was, I was terribly nerdy, believe it or not. <laughs> and, no, that can't be true. And uh, I was on the chess team. I played the bassoon. I was in Model United Nations. Yeah. There's and, a bassoon player yeah, right there. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, I'll beat anyone here in chess, by the way. The, but, uh, and then I took my first acting class and I made the attractive girls laugh and they invited me to sit at their lunch table. And then I was like, screw Model United Nations <laughs> and the bassoon. I left all that behind. I was like, I'm going to be full on drama nerd. Uh, so, uh, so it was, that also was comedy. So, but you talked about grace and comedy. And yeah, grace and Let me, and let me segue like a little bit. Like that intersection. Because 
uh, getting away from the childhood a little bit, um, it was one thing I really struggled with on The Office. Like I was doing a really deep dive into spirituality and founded this company, Soul Pancake. We did some work with Oprah Winfrey's company and we were, um, uh, I was really exploring these ideas and here I was on this network sitcom and I was really trying to figure this out. And I read some Baha'i writings that were very uh, beautiful and meant a lot to me. And they had to do with the fact that the making of art is the same as prayer mm. in the Baha'i faith. So the creation of something beautiful that didn't exist before. If you have an empty stage mm. and someone comes out and does a dance on it or does a, a mm. play or recites a poem or sings a song or whatever it is, where there was nothing and then there is something beautiful and that is filled with the spark of the divine and there is no difference between that and devotion in a temple or a church mm. or something like that and and i thought well that's really what we're doing on the office is we're telling stories we're making people laugh and over the years having people come to me saying how much the show has meant to them mm -hmm. that their parents were going through a divorce and they and they laughed at the office or they were struggling in covid and the office meant so much to them and and realizing what a, what a salve comedy and humor can be and that ultimately it was a profound service. Not a service I got, in, I got into it because I wanted to buy a house, <laughs> you know? Don't get me wrong, again, yeah. it was necessity, not virtue. It was like, oh, I'll bestow upon the little people <laughs> some laughter <laughs> to enliven their meaningless, petty little lives. No, not at all, but... Uh, it's been really gratifying and and as I've moved along in my life and gained a little bit more wisdom I realized that um, to act in grace to act in divine light um, is something that we all do that we kind of all do more of in our whether we're teaching whether we're entrepreneurs and creating jobs whether we're in working in nonprofits whether we're raising magnificent families that um, the emulation of that divine impulse toward love, towards community, towards compassion, towards inspiration um, is something that we all do and it really is synonymous with prayer. Mm. Um, and that stuff AI can't do. I got into well, a fight. I got into a fight earlier at dinner. Uh, okay. Because somebody said that what if, what if AI takes over all the art? And I said, I think there will always be art. But... Maybe we don't have to go there because um, I got kind of annoyed. <laughs> I think there will always be art or I hope there will. And, and if there isn't, I hope I'm dead before it's gone. <laughs> um, but let's talk about prayer because- I'm a hologram, by the way. Oh, you're not real? <laughs> you feel real? I'm a fleshy hologram. <laughs> yeah. Just like Michael Jackson was that hologram. Yeah. Remember that? Um, okay, so let's talk about prayer. Um, I, you, I loved this chapter in your book where you have this very simple method. I know you stole it from Anne Lamont, but regardless, it's something that you, you work with. And it's something that I have, um, since reading your book, practiced a little bit myself. Mm -hmm. You talk to everybody about it. Yeah, I'm, I mean, well, I, I say a lot about prayer, but um, one of the things I talk about is that everyone in mid-America prays and everyone on the coasts meditates. <laughs> so even in this, we're divided. <laughs> uh, and I do believe that there is a yin and a yang power in both prayer and meditation. Mm -hmm. So prayer is beseeching, connecting, communicating, pleading, 
seeking understanding, but there is a, there's a movement out of the heart, right? Toward the divine universe, uh, cosmic creative force. Uh, and meditation is listening and being receptive and being open and quiet and still and small. And, uh, and those two work in, in harmony. Mm -hmm. But Anne Lamott has one of my favorite books and it's called Help Thanks Wow, yeah. The Three Prayers. So help, you know, pleading, beseeching, God help me like I'm going through hell and I really need help. And thanks, you know, thank you for getting me through this or gratitude, you know, thanks for this and thank you for, you know, these wonderful boots and for being at Aspen and the cheeseburger I had earlier, <laughs> whatever it is. And then, wow, just being in that state of awe and curiosity that we tend to lose after we leave our childhood, yeah. but that children so naturally have, and that I try and cultivate in myself to just be in my yard with hummingbirds, to just be in awe of hummingbirds. It's like, wow, hummingbirds, incredible. And just living in that vibration is also itself a kind of a prayer. Don't you think that's so beautiful? Um, I, I wanna talk a, a little bit more about your dad. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned that you lost him several years ago, and I know that he was the impetus in some ways for even writing this book. Mm -hmm. yep. um, obviously, forgiveness is something that you were able to do, and you also were with him um, in the months while he was dying. Mm -hmm. I know that you, that was a very meaningful time for you. So talk a little bit about him as an inspiration and, and that time with him as well. Yeah, it, um it, uh, it actually, it wasn't months, it was very, it was very sudden, which in a, some ways is better. Um, and I, and I, it's a, one question I do ask people is like, would you rather know you're gonna die and have like three months where you know, or six months or something like that? Or would you rather just like get hit by a train and just be gone? Like, and what are the benefits? I know, I'm sorry to get, yeah, bring I'm like, wow, this is, we're getting really dark. Well, when you deal yeah. with, Big spiritual yeah. concepts like suffering and death. Yeah, they there, are dark. There is some dark. There is some darkness there, but there's always light underneath. Mm -hmm. But with my dad, he had to get quadruple bypass surgery, and um, uh, and the the statistically the survival rate is very high. But he uh, he didn't survive. Um, I got to spend the last hour and a half. He was conscious before surgery with him. This was during COVID. And uh, that was really uh, an incredible blessing. And I'll never forget, I don't know why, like we all were just certain he was gonna come through with flying colors. And the doctor was like, oh, this is, has a 95% success rate and blah, blah, blah. And uh, but for some reason, before they wheeled him in, I, I just took a couple pictures of him on my phone. And I wasn't thinking at all like, oh, he might die or something like that. But it, it, I don't know why I just had that impulse. But it was, you know, um, and then after uh, 10 or 12 hours of surgery, they were losing him and he was, uh, he was unconscious. He was essentially on a, on, in a coma and he, they were losing him. His blood, blood pressure was dropping. And um, I was there with my stepmom, his widow. And uh, the only thing I could think of was, this is so cliche <laughs> because it was, such, it was so much like one of those hospital shows. It was like the doctors whispering and their squeaky shoes on the linoleum and the heart machine going beep, 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 and the breath machine going And I was like, wow, it's just like this, those shows. <laughs> um, that's all I could think about. But um, that's how wired for television I am. Mm -hmm. But um, 
Yeah, so my, uh, and then we, uh, he only had a small amount of time to live, so we okayed him being essentially unplugged. And uh, I just had such a profound experience, and maybe some of you have had this, a similar experience, where in witnessing his body on the table there in the recovery room, um, and then it became lifeless, uh, I just was struck, like, like just being punched in the heart, like, oh, that's not him. Mm. That's not my father. Like, yes, that's his body, that's where his stray eyebrow hairs poking out, and that's the mole on his forearm, and that's his, you know, hair poking out of his nose, and that's, you know, that's, that's his body, but that's not my father. That's the vessel that carried my father. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it happens to go along with my spiritual beliefs, but it's different when you just have a profound, mm. visceral experience of something. And, and just also realizing, like, it wasn't that the candle was snuffed out. It was that the light had moved on. Mm. And his essence of his, his consciousness, his humor, his light, his love, uh, his perception, all of his beautiful divine spiritual qualities, his kindness, his compassion, his radiance had moved, had moved on. And it was, you know, it was devastating. It was uh, incredibly tragic and, and grief-filled, but also uh, it, was, it was beautiful to have that kind of realization. And my father was very, uh, obviously very important to me in my life, um, he loved the arts and, uh, and encouraged me always in the arts. And he was this, uh, he worked in a sewer man, as a sewer man and painted abstract oil paintings uh, and wrote science fiction novels uh, at the same time. No, he didn't paint the paintings in feces. <laughs> I know that's what you were thinking. But, uh, so he was incredibly uh, inspirational uh, to me and his death, this was right around when I had started the book and I was outlining it and I knew I wanted to write a book, but his death and then realizing like, oh, these topics are what I want to explore. Like I have a chapter on death. I have a chapter called The Notorious G.O.D. Um, <laughs> about God and, you know, and I try and do things with, with humor and levity and, uh, and kooky stories uh, peppered throughout, but I also try and get yeah. unabashedly profound when uh, when the need be. Can we can we talk a little bit more about death? Because God, that was weird. Was that AI that just someone died? Yeah. Wow. Someone. Is there everybody okay in here? Um, <laughs> because you say you write in the book that it's one of your favorite topics because yeah. it really emphasizes living. Mm-hmm. And I think as a culture. Uh, a lot of us are afraid to talk about it, right? There's fear. Yeah. We don't know what comes next. Um, are you afraid of dying? Uh, and Is that a threat? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of it like that, but no, no, I'm not going to. Not today. Okay. <laughs> um, am I afraid? Yeah, I'm sure I'm afraid. There's so many unknowns. I, I'd be lying to say that I'm... I'm uh, not afraid, but at the same time, you know, again, we have to take a giant step back culturally and look at humanity through the ages where conversations about death were common. They were daily. They were weekly. And certainly our, uh, our descendants, our 
ancestors. Our ancestors. Yeah. Ancestors. Descendants come after. Yeah. I think. Thank you. <laughs> our ancestors were much more uh, verse, well versed with death because yeah. it was happening all the time. I mean, bubonic plague. Yeah, yeah, and you read yeah. about people who had twelve kids and seven of them died in childbirth, and yeah. some of them would die when they're you know five or ten or twelve years old, and so it was much more common. But in spiritual traditions and cultural traditions, conversations about death were very common, and in contemporary Western and secular and American society, we just don't talk about it. And if someone brings it up, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, and everyone gets very awkward. And at the same time, our ancestors, not just genetic ancestors, but our spiritual ancestors, realized the incredible power of contemplating death and how much that reflected on life, yes. how much more uh, vital, important, and uh, exciting uh, it, it frames life literally with a framing device that someday we will all die. So what does that mean now? And how does that inform the purpose of our life? You know, if, if one is an atheist and believes that consciousness goes out like a light switch at the end of life, how does that inform how you live your life until that point? And no one knows when that is going to come. If you uh, are a religionist or a theist and believe that there is something more to us than just the body, that our, our consciousness, our light, our heart, uh, these divine spiritual essences of ourselves, as, would, as a, you know, a religionist would define them, continue on some kind of journey, whether that's heaven, nirvana, happy hunting ground, you know, how, however you want to define it. Um, how, how does that work? How does that inform the choices that we make? I mean, you can go through in Native American traditions where they would s greet every morning with today is a good day to die. Mm -hmm. You know, the Stoics who would say memento more, you know, remember you are going to die. Caesars and generals would walk in parades through ancient Rome with a, a slave or servant behind them with a horn going memento more. So everyone's cheering them like, yay, yay. <laughs> and like someone is saying, remember, you're going to die. Remember, you're going to die. <laughs> As a way to bring your ego down to the reality of, of who, who you are. Um, it's interesting, the Victorians were fascinated by death and they would talk about death all the time. They had seances, they would keep dead bodies in their living rooms, they would be photographed with their dead babies and hang wow. those photographs on the wall. I mean, you look into the Victorian England stuff on death, it's fascinating, uh, but they never talked about sex. <laughs> and I, it, like it didn't exist. In contemporary America, it's sex. It's all we care about. Sex sells, and the, our, the, literally the most popular people on social media are people who are sexual yeah. icons, and we talk about sex and sex identity and, and gender, and, 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 and sex is like the most important thing about contemporary culture, and we don't talk about death. But we could benefit a great deal from a, a, a kind of... Uh, contemplation, uh, 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 an inspired contemplation and connection to death and how that informs the choices that we make. Mm -hmm. You write about this pilgrimage that you took to Israel mm -hmm. and this feeling of, of holy sacredness. Mm -hmm. But what I found to be so interesting is what was most meaningful is what happened when you returned home. Mm. And you realize that, that you needed to find that holy sacredness in the everyday, in the mm. mundane. Yeah. H how do you do it? And talk a little bit about that. 
Well, that's a struggle, isn't it? So uh, as a Baha'i, I did a holy pilgrimage in the Baha'i faith, which in the Baha'i Holy Land is in the northern Israel in the Haifa area. Maybe some of you have seen the gardens there and uh, Mount Carmel in Haifa and, and the surrounding area, Akko and, and whatnot. And that's where the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith was buried and the family lived. There's a great deal of history there. You know, tablets were written there. Persecution happened there. Deaths happened there. Births happened there. And then it's also where the Baha'i administrative center is for the world. And so it's a very holy place. And, and people come all the time for pilgrimage. And it's a nine-day pilgrimage. And you're in, you're in constant prayer and meditation. And you're visiting these holy places and these gardens. Gardens everywhere. And connecting with nature and communing. And I, and I went with my wife and my son, who was, I think, 13 at the time. And it was profound and so moving. And, and, uh, and then I got back to Los Angeles. And of course, duh, what's going to happen? <laughs> but my phone's blowing up and text and I missed the Zoom meeting. And, you know, you've got to return this email right away. And the, you know, the dog got bit by a raccoon. And, you know, it's like all of this, it's like life stuff, you know. And, um, uh, and, and I really had, a, a, again, a profound kind of vision of just missing the sacred in my life. And so I, I did a lot of kind of thinking and contemplating about how can we find the sacred in the everyday and doing some reading about that. And, uh, and a sacred doesn't need to be a sacred doesn't need to be relegated to a shrine or a church. For a long time, sacredness was only correlated to churches. And um, it was, you know, in the history of conversations about the sacred, the idea that nature could be sacred or the family could be sacred or that you could have sacred moments and stuff outside of a church, it was kind of heretical. Um, uh, and that's really a development of the last century. But for me, you know, I have a, a beautiful little prayer bench in my yard. I talked about those hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. And um, those are really sacred moments. But it's also sacred, a sacred moment for me to be making, you know, waffles with my wife and son. And, and on a Sunday morning, that feels sacred. And uh, so I, I, I think this is, again, a conversation that culturally we're not having. And we are losing something by not having this conversation of how do we find the sacred in the everyday. And I think it's a great starting point for if you have children to talk about sacredness and, and what that means. Uh, it's often, uh, I think a lot of people wince when they hear the word because it's often, again, so correlated with organized, quote unquote, organized religion that for a lot of people, they're like, I don't <laughs> want to think about everything sacred. I don't want to talk about it. But because we're traumatized by religion um, in the Western world, and uh, there is such a, a reaction either toward it or against it that it feels like this big trauma. Um, but uh, I'll just end this by saying that uh, I was reading this wonderful book called uh, Narrow Road to the North, uh, Narrow Road to the Interior, depending on the translation. And it's about the Japanese haiku poet Basho. Mm. And Basho would, uh, in the 15th century, he'd wander around uh, medieval Japan and he would see nature and write a haiku, contemplate nature and write a haiku in all these holy places all around Japan. And he would go to these Shinto shrines and Buddhist shrines. 
And he was, so he was traveling, he was itinerant, writing poems. He would leave the poems on the shrines and be gazing and focusing on nature. And, uh, and I thought, this is so beautiful. We should all be doing this. We should all be wandering around, creating beautiful works of art, connecting those to nature, and then connecting those to sacred, religious, or spiritual you know, places yeah. or events where there's an integration where art's not over here and God's not over here and nature's not over here and religion's not over here, but they're all integrated so beautifully. So, you know, we have, we have a lot to learn. It seems to me that one of the things that interrupts that kind of presence, which can bring around that feeling of something being sacred is technology, mm. cell phones, mm -hmm. you know, and when you talked about the things that were disruptive when you got home from this beautiful trip, it was yeah. like email, Zoom, this, that. Um, you, the Surgeon General was here earlier this weekend and he said there's an epidemic, he said to me, there's an epidemic of loneliness. Mm. People can't sit across from one another and talk about anything. Politics, mm -hmm. definitely mm -hmm. not, you mm -hmm. know, and, and community isn't necessarily as strong as it used to be. Um, so. I, I'm asking you how we fix it. <laughs> um, based on, on what you have studied, what could help? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that gets complicated, doesn't it? Um, <clears throat> so one of the central theses uh, of my book is that uh, there are spiritual tools from the world's great faith traditions and wisdom traditions that can help us, that we can turn toward, that we can learn from if we are humble enough. And these can help us individually and these tools can also help us collectively. Mm -hmm. um, so this is where it starts to get complicated because what you're talking about is diseases of despair. Yeah. So they're talking about contemporary diseases of despair. This is the mental health epidemic. Yes. It's the opioid crisis. It's also the loneliness epidemic. Yeah. That is, you know, people being lonely, it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes yes. a day and, you know, lowers your, your health, increases cancer and, uh, and your age limit, mm -hmm. you know, your life expectancy. So these diseases... Uh, have a spiritual component, I believe. Um, and I talk about in, in the book early on, I have a chapter called A Plethora of Pandemics, where I talk about all the pandemics in the world essentially have a spiritual foundation. Racism mm -hmm. has a, is a pandemic throughout the world. It's especially virulent in the United States, but it exists in every country you go to. And... Uh, and it's othering someone else, right? And there's essentially, a, Jesus Christ didn't other anyone. Mm -hmm. In fact, people told him like, you can't visit the Samaritans. You can't visit the, the prostitutes. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, they're dirty and Jesus was washing their feet. Mm -hmm. So this, there is a spiritual disease at the center of something like racism. There's a spiritual disease at the center of inequality between women and men, between income inequality, mm -hmm. the fact that we can live as a species where, you know, 20 men have as much wealth as half of the planet, and half of those men are in this room. <laughs> uh, Thank you for coming and supporting the uh, Aspen Ideas Good night, Fest. everybody. <laughs> uh, see you at the driving range tomorrow. Uh, but the... Uh, uh, 
But seriously, the yeah. you know income inequality, and as soon as you mention income inequality and the injustice around it, people again have a traumatic mm-hmm. recoil of like, oh, you're talking about socialism. <gasps> it's socialism. You're talking about communism. No, don't don't worry. I'm not talking about socialism and communism. I'm talking about justice and fairness mm-hmm. and and equity and generosity and increasing our view of our families from our immediate families to our extended families to our neighborhood to people who are like us to our state to our country to our hemisphere to our globe so that we have an we have an extended human family that we desperately achingly want to take care of and the the meaning crisis the you know the 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 mental health crisis these deaths of despair have a spiritual component. It's not completely yeah. uh, spiritual, but we could benefit by using and uh, utilizing some of these spiritual tools. And that gets a little more towards the spiritual revolution that I'm talking about, which I'm just going to kind of jump to the end yeah, go a little to it. bit. Go to it. Because uh, essentially my, my main thesis is that we are continually as a society trying to put band-aids on systems that are fundamentally broken. They're fundamentally rotten and corrupt at their core, and we keep trying to pass little legislations here and there and put little Band-Aids on things and hoping that they'll just kind of go along. Climate change is a, is mm-hmm. a great example of that because there is a spiritual disease at the root of climate change which has to do with just our connection to nature yeah. and, our con- and our connection to, cons- to kind of abject, greed-filled consumerism. Um, you know, we all want and deserve nice things and everyone around the planet wants and deserves nice things and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But the way that we're doing it is unsustainable yeah. and we're deluding ourselves to think that it's sustainable that every corporation can increase profits every single quarter and that the Earth's resources are limitless mm-hmm. and the amount that we can dump into the atmosphere and into the oceans is also limitless. There's, there's an imbalance here that is... Uh, profound and needs to be considered on a, on a deeper level other than simply legislation mm. and other than simply than policy. Now, legislation is important. Protest is important. Policy changes are important. But they're not going to fix these kind of these, again, global pandemics. I mean, I look at healthcare and we have a healthcare system that's based on profit. Mm-hmm. And so now you have you know, companies that are coming in and buying these you know, smattering of doctor's offices and then slashing the ones that aren't profitable. And, um, uh, but if you have a system that is supposed to heal people and bring solace to people and soothe them, and whether they're rich or poor, and then you base it on profit, it, no matter how much kind of bills you pass in Washington, D.C., or shifts you make, we're not gonna, we're not gonna fix that. So we, we need to figure that, we need to figure that out and have kind of a, a, a deeper conversation, uh, again, about the, the fundamental uh, imbalances. I feel like so many of the systems in the world are based on the worst aspects of humanity. Mm-hmm. So what are our worst aspects? What do we like least about people? We like, like hyper-aggressiveness, backstabbing, power-seeking, ego, aggrandizing, uh, bragging. You know, all of, all of these, these kind of uh, qualities are the qualities that we base our system on. Yeah. And, you know, it, 
you know, again, there might be a lot of collective eye rolling of like, who's this crazy hippie <laughs> actor? Um, but, but we're not having the conversation about. No, she loves you. Oh, right, so right. you're fine. Yeah. Oh, you oh, right. love. They love you. Right. Sorry. Thank you. So. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh. So okay. <laughs> Thanks, mom. She. Um, <laughs> You found her! <laughs> there she is. Oh, Thank you. Uh, uh, the capitalists are filing out. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Oh, gosh. The, uh... Well. <laughs> so... If we base our systems on the worst and the worser angels of our nature, then uh, they become truly unsustainable. And this is uh, a, a difficult conversation to have. It, it, it requires a, 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 re a massive rethinking of how humanity is on the planet itself, but it's an important conversation to be having. Mm -hmm. We should give him a clap for that, not just mom. Um, you also somehow scored the best job ever, which is going around the world in pursuit of bliss. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Talk, first of all, about this, this and, and getting paid for it, too. Um, talk about where it's you- It's Peacock, so I didn't get paid that well. <laughs> hey, Sorry. it's all in the family. Remember? Yeah, I know NBC. there's some NBC people yeah, here. Yeah, and, and me. Um, it's good. Y'all paid fine. Okay, so um, talk about where you traveled and what you found and what you took home with so, you. So maybe some of you are familiar with the book The Geography of Bliss by Eric Weiner. Uh, it was a big bestseller about 15 years ago. Uh, I got a call from these young producers and they'd secured the rights to this book and they wanted to do it as a travel show because that's what Eric Weiner did. He was a is a very well-known journalist and NPR reporter, and he, you know, he calls himself a grump, and he would go around the world looking for happiness and trying to understand what, what made certain cultures happier and more successful and more filled with well-being than other cultures. And I just loved this idea, and we, we developed it and, and figured it out and did a sizzle in a package and took it out around, and Peacock bought it. Uh, which was wonderful. I never thought I'd have a job better than the office, but truly like getting paid, like you say, to travel the world, talk to some of the most interesting people on the planet and do a deep dive into different cultures about what makes them happy and successful and filled with well-being. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. It, it was, uh, and we went to Iceland, we went to Ghana, uh, West Africa, which is an incredible place. Uh, and Thailand, we went to Bulgaria, one of the unhappiest places on earth, to learn, see what we could learn there, and then we brought it home to Los Angeles, and uh, it's been such a pleasure to be a part of, and uh, here's hoping we get a season two. Yeah. But, um, you were not really working with the NBC peeps right here when you said you didn't get paid that much. You know, you should say... I'm not, I'm not talking to them. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, it's, been a, it's been a great experience. It's yeah. such a, a fun thing. Actually, Somebody today mentioned how, how much fun they had watching it. It's a beautiful okay. show. So you, it's streaming now if you're interested. A lot of celebrities travel the world sampling delicious foods. <laughs> uh, God bless them. I'm, I'm traveling the world looking for happiness mm -hmm. and kind of thriving human culture. So 
Um, no. We are going to turn it over. We are going to turn it over to questions from all of y'all. Um, so get ready. But first, I just have to end with you say without certainty uh, w- that without uncertainty, with certainty, sorry, you all, um, you say with certainty, you know that there is a God for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Um, when are you closest? When do you feel the peace from God? When are you um, closest to him or her or it or they or whatever? Well, we could have an hour conversation just on this question. Uh, I'll cut to the chase and say, in my spiritual quest, one of my biggest hang-ups and problems, like many of y'all's, <laughs> is this idea of God yeah. and the God that we grew up with and the whole idea of some kind of patriarchal being with superpowers. I call him in my book Sky Daddy. Yeah, it's so good. Um, Sky Daddy. So getting away from Sky Daddy. Uh, and uh, I talk a lot about it in, in the book, but... For me, I would far more equate now in my life God with love than with any kind of being or demiurge or God with superpowers looking down and Mm -hmm. throwing thunderbolts, kind of a Zeus, Zeus meets Santa Claus kind of version of of (laughs) God. Sky Daddy, yeah. But people ask me, how do you know there's a God? It's like, well, I know that I love. I know that I love my wife and son. I know that I love my father who's no longer with us. And I know that this love is not just something that is a neurochemical, you know, micro explosions <laughs> that can be found on an MRI machine or something like our brain scan, that it's deep and profound and resonant and ever growing and ever changing and affects my life and is one of the strongest forces in the universe. I know that there's love. You don't have to prove love to me. I don't need to prove love to you. And I feel that God, and that's a tricky word, the mm-hmm. divine force, the, yeah. the universal uh, cosmic vibration of, of truth and beauty and, and art and joy, uh, I know that that's as real as love. Mm-hmm. So. start over here. Um, we're going to take questions. Um, it's, they told me to say no comments. Sorry. Um, but, but well, questions. I will say questions usually end with a question mark <laughs> and they have kind of an up inflection at yeah, the end. But so you, if you're not ending it with a question mark and it's kind of going down, then you're probably in the wrong direction. Um, but, but I want to start over here because I do feel like we've had our backs to you. But raise your hand and we'll bring around microphones. There's a lot. I'll be quick. Hi, I'm Erin. Oh, I have to stand up? Okay. Sure. Hello, I'm Erin Williams. Um, You mentioned earlier that you spent time um, being quiet, looking for your sense of mission, purpose, and clarity. And I'm wondering if you would share with us what you found, what that was. Mm. Uh, Yeah. Um, Well, I find great uh, truth and beauty and meaning and focus in my faith tradition in the Baha'i faith. Um, that's not what this book is about. I, in fact, I talk relatively little about the Mm -hmm. Baha'i faith, but for me personally, but I feel that, uh, 
We all have been given uh, gifts and faculties that have a divine spark uh, with them, whether it's writing, uh, teaching, creating laughter, creating uh, businesses, making whatever it is that, do, that we do that makes the world a better place. So I'm on a constant mission to both make myself a better person and to try and make the world a better place using the, the, the qualities that God gave me, uh, storytelling, uh, humor, uh, service to others, um, and so there's a dance between those two aspects of the spiritual life, which is contemplative and is uh, and put into practice and in action. Awesome. Yes, sir. Oh, wait, here. Hi, I'm Ernest Esparza. Uh, first, thank you about talking about your dad in a society that, like, we care so much about our jobs. My dad's a superintendent, but he's a lover of the arts, and people can't understand that. They just look at him as a super and can't understand, like, his love for the art. So hearing you talk about your dad made me, like, think about mine. So thank you for that. Um, and my question is, how does somebody deal with, like, faith is so polarizing. It, the faith that I have is also the faith that hurts others. So how does one deal with, I guess, like my faith might hurt somebody else and the faith that I have has also hurt me. So I guess how does somebody deal with, I guess, the balance of that? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I don't, I don't have any immediate answer to that. Um, I think every, every faith tradition starts with tremendous purity and then humanity mm -hmm and its ego kind of corrupts it. So uh, one of the things I, I do with, with Christianity, which I love, is I look at the life and works and words of Jesus Christ, and I look at the incredible church before it was institutionalized. Um, in the first 300 years of Christianity, it was the, one of the greatest... Uh, human experiments of all time, which was we are going to gather with people of all tribes, of all genders, of all sexes, of all classes, of all skin colors, of all, you know, wealth and occupations, and we are uh, united in a devotion to Jesus the Son and God the Father and seek salvation and seek to serve others. There's writings from ancient Rome where these Roman philosophers in the year two, 300 are like, what the hell is up with these Christians? They are sacrificing their own time and their own money to help other people that aren't even in their tribe. What the hell is going on? It did not compute. So <clears throat> I think uh, my answer would be go to the source. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Sorry, microphone. Uh, Rain, for one, just a huge fan of yours, um, Victor Galvan. Um, I I live in a constant state of like political activation. Um, I'm undocumented. Came to this country as a child. Was brought as a child, and I constantly am being put at the center of a political battlefield. Um, and I think a lot of people in this country, women. Um, black people, right, um, anything that is not um, Judeo-Christianity, 
what would your advice be for someone who is always on the brink of disaster, what feels like both in your personal safety and your autonomy? Yeah, um, uh, I, I, I really don't know how to answer that question and it's ter terrifically difficult and I, and I feel for you, I really have tremendous empathy. Uh, there's so much injustice going on and so much hatred being spewed and uh, a negativity and divisiveness where it gets dangerous and lives are literally at risk. I will say that uh, from my perspective, from a pure spiritual perspective, I feel that the seeking of justice is a spiritual act. And the great spiritual teachers and leaders have always sought justice. Justice is different than politics. Politics literally means the pursuit of power. It has to do with the, the balance of power and the struggle for power. So um, surrendering power and going for, for justice, I think, is, is important. And uh, I think that, and this is an idea that might resonate with this audience, um, uh, I got to know uh, this guy, um, now I'm blanking on his name, and he's the, uh, he works in climate, uh, activism, and he is Greta Thunberg's speechwriter. <clears throat> and I sat down with him and was talking to him about it, and he said, you know, Rain, here's what I do in terms of climate. My own personal work, I work on clean air. Why? Everyone can agree on clean air. Everyone wants clean air. I mean, the president of Chevron that was here speaking today, I don't know that he wants clean air, but everyone wants, <laughs> essentially everyone wants clean air, and political left, political right, we can all agree we want the air to be cleaner. We, want, we don't want little kids getting asthma. We want our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to, uh, <clears throat> to breathe better. And uh, this can unite us. This is a point of commonality and a, <clears throat> excuse me, a point of, uh, uh, yeah, of a precious point of unity between both sides. And he said, this way, I, and guess what? Win-win. When you get... When you, get, when you seek cleaner air, you're reducing CO2 and other gas emissions and you're helping climate, but it's something we can all work on. So can we find those precious points of unity between left and right, between Democrat and Republican um, that we can all agree on that need fixing and then you know, get to know each other as we're working on those issues? Easier said than done, but. Yeah. Um, okay, we don't have that much more time, but can we, are we allowed to go a little longer? Um, we are. Is that okay with you, Rain, to answer a couple more questions? Hell no. My time's up. <laughs> Where's my check? Where's the NBC? Uh, okay, yeah, well, I could go all night. Let's, okay. I'm, I'm fine. Okay. Um, right here. We, I can't go all night because I'm going to have to pee at some point, but, um, but okay. Me too. Me too. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to be here in the space with you and everyone here. And my question is, my name is Sarah Stevenson. Sorry about that. Um, in your book, you are talking about um, the need to honor and remember the uh, divine feminine. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean about that and what uh, that looks like? Sure. So in my book, uh, I have a chapter called, Hey Kids, Let's Build the Perfect Religion. And uh, because there is such a, um, a knee-jerk reaction, especially by young people about organized religion, which I completely understand, but I thought, wouldn't this be a fun thought experiment to kind of create 
what would it look like if we could create the perfect religion or a religion that we all agree, agreed upon and had some really beautiful, wonderful qualities that people would get really excited about. So I created Soul Boom, the religion. Don't worry, I'm not the head of it. Uh, I'm not a cult leader. And uh, because one of the qualities of this religion is it would not have any clergy. Mm -hmm. The time of clergy is over. Let it be run much more democratically, maybe much more like a 12-step meeting than having like anyone with authority with a funny hat. So, uh, but... Uh, I, I talk about the divine feminine. When you, when you study religions and you go back past a certain point of time, I don't remember exactly the, the time, religion itself is all feminine-based. It's earth, mother, fecundity, change of the seasons, uh, the healing beneficence of the motherhood, uh, etc. And then around... Uh, it's around 1000 BC or 1500 BC, somewhere around then, it starts to become very patriarchal. And it's, it's daddy, sky daddy, father, <laughs> my, impose my God on you. You know, gods become war. You know, our tribe conquers your tribe and now you need to worship our God and he's a mighty conqueror. So it's, it becomes equated kind of with militarism. And we've lost something by eliminating the divine feminine from the spiritual conversation. And um, there's some beautiful books on the topic. And... Uh, I think that, again, in reconceiving our idea of God and, and, and faith and religion and, and spirit itself and connecting that more to uh, a feminine kind of healing energy and powerful energy, uh, we could benefit from that. So. Yeah, we agree. <laughs> um, okay, I'm trying to... Yeah. Yes, you've been raising your hand eagerly. My name is Susan Silver. Um, given that you are this incredible deep thinker with a spiritual side and all those virtues, you were in showbiz and you were in Hollywood, which, how can I put this kindly, is not the, is the last place on earth that cares about those things. How did you cope on a daily basis with that? Did you have any friends? Did you have anyone to talk to other than your wife? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Um it's interesting. So in so many ways, you're right. I will say like even on the set of The Office, like almost everyone on The Office was spiritual or religious in some way. And most of the cast went to church on Sundays or a lot of the writers went to synagogue as well. And so, uh, and, but people who have faith in Hollywood, they, they're afraid to talk about mm -hmm. it and they keep it really secret. And so it's like, uh, it's, it's keeping this, this big... <laughs> Because it's not cool, right? It's not cool. You can get ostracized. There's, you know, there's a vocal kind of secular anti-religion kind of movement as well. I don't know. I got in either A, a lot of trouble or I got a lot of praise because there was this episode of The Last of Us where it started and there was this preacher preaching to his congregation um, and talking quoting from the Bible and immediately in my head I'm like oh he's evil and oh. not only that he was a pedophile cannibal he was like the evilest character you could possibly create I'm not kidding at all and I tweeted about this I'm like why in Hollywood it's like if you need someone evil you make them a preacher or a pastor <laughs> like it's just it's well 
And not only is it prejudiced, like it's lazy writing, yeah. you know, because it doesn't, no, it doesn't, everyone who saw it is like, oh, he's bad. <laughs> um, and wh why can't you have, like most of the Christians I know and the pastors and preachers and priests that I know are just loving and kind and wonderful people that want to make the world a better place. They're not really portrayed in Hollywood. So I got lambasted from the left and I got praised from the right. And then I write about climate change and I get lambasted from the right <laughs> and praised from the left. So it's just, I know I'm doing something right and the book itself is getting hit from both sides as well. So I know I'm doing something right when I'm getting hit from both sides. But I, I think that... Um, uh, there's more people. I also worked in the insurance industry, and that was the most venal, backstabbing, <laughs> grotesque <laughs> occupation I'd ever worked in. Uh, they were the, just the worst people on earth. Um, Sorry for all of you that are in insurance. Like they're leaving the insurance. Yeah, no, they're people. like, yeah, Bye. thanks a lot. Bye, Allstate. <laughs> thanks for your sponsorship. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Um, I can't wait till we do this again next year, right? Ask Ben oh, and me this is back. my last year. Don't worry. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, maybe one more question. Um, it's so hard. Okay, over here. Sorry. Oh, okay. Well, I called on one, but you can all... I know you. I'll call on you too, Kip. Hi, my name is... Hi, my name is Vivian, and I know you've done a lot of reflecting and searching for answers in your life. What is one piece of advice you would give to the younger self of you? That's such a good question. To the younger self of me? Of you. Uh, yeah, great question. It's, uh, boy, I really don't have a ready answer for that. Um, I would say that, um, you know, there's... The, I lived most of my life with this idea that happiness was something that was going to be down the road. If I did X, Y, and Z, then I would be happy. Mm. And I would get there. No, but I need, need there. And then I'm going to be content. No, no, no. It's really that. Like, this is it, baby. Like, <laughs> your day, your breath uh, is where joy, bliss, and well-being is to be found. And... Uh, <laughs> And, and culturally, we're wired, and you talk to college students, for instance, and they're like, you know, they really are miserable and think that once they get the job that pays them 175 a year, and once they find their partner, and once they have a house, and once they have a kid, and once they have a, a club membership or whatever, that then they're going to be happy. <laughs> and they're just miserable, but striving for that thing that is ultimately going to yeah. make them happy. And then guess what? then it's always, it's always something else. It's always something else. Mm -hmm. Even when I was at the office, at the height of fame, Emmy nominations, getting leads in movies, like making lots and lots of money, like even then like, it was never enough for me, you know? So I had a lot to learn even from those, those years. God, it's, he's very wise. Um, okay, this is our, really our last question right here. You're welcome. She works at KIPP. She's a teacher, so. I had to call on her. Hello, everybody. Jade Sands. Uh, thanks, Jenna. Um, okay, so my question is, in this um, state that we're living in where uh, abortion is being said that, oh, this is God's will, so women can't have abortions anymore, or shaming the LGBT community, is there a space for religion and spirituality inside of politics and inside of the government? Uh, no. 
Uh, you know, um, yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I feel it's a little above my pay grade. It's a very important question. Um, and I don't know exactly how to answer it um, other than to say that, you know, we're supposed to have separation of church and state. So uh, I think that... Uh, I think that that line gets blurred in some in some really uh, dangerous ways. And um, but again, can the the solution might sound hippy dippy, airy fairy, but um, rather than kind of the aggrieved seeking uh, more simply more protest and more political power, how can we find ways to work together to build coalition? It's a lot harder. It's suckier, it's more difficult, but uh, I think it's important that we all keep trying to do that kind of work. So. Uh, um, thank you all so much for being here. Thank you. Rain Wilson is an actor, writer, and producer. His acting credits include The Office and Rain Wilson and the Geography of Bliss, a new six-part travel docuseries in which Wilson travels around the world to discover the happiest places on Earth. Wilson's latest book is Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Jenna Bush Hager is co-host of Today with Hoda and Jenna on NBC. She joined Today as a correspondent and contributor in 2009. Hager's also the author or co-author of several books. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team in partnership with NBC Universal News Group and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.